Good morning. You'll notice we're, uh, we're two songs and we're straight to a sermon today. We're actually going to sing a couple of songs after the sermon. You know, when we, when we gather to worship, hopefully when we open God's word and we look at what it says and we see it together, that will lead us to worship. So we've left a few songs after this time so that hopefully that's the case, that we're, we're moved by what God's word says to then worship him in song. So that's what we're going to do this morning. But uh, as we begin, as I was working on this this week, I kept uh, thinking of a, a book that I had read this past year, and I kept coming back to it and actually went back and read parts of it. It was a book called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years by an author named Donald Miller. And uh, he, w- he wrote this book about uh, a, a different book he had written, became pretty successful, and some guys came to him and they said, we want to make it into a movie. And the first book he had written was really a lot about his life and his spiritual journey and these different things. So in a lot of ways, they were saying, we want to make a movie that's centered on your story about you. So he thought, this is really cool. And, and him being a writer, they said, we'd like you to be involved in the process of making it into a screenplay and helping us. And so he starts to work through that with these guys, and they're doing that. But to his dismay and kind of a hit to his... Uh, pride was they would keep saying stuff like, oh, we've got to change this. This isn't very interesting. Or we've got to make this better. We need to find a love interest for you. And we need to have a greater conflict. And we need to do all these things. And he started to get real self-conscious and kind of frustrated, like, well, this is my life. And they're saying, we need to make it a lot better. And we need to do this. So he's, he's writing this book and he's sorting through all these things. But somewhere along the journey, he decided that I do need to live a better life. I do need to just, instead of editing my life to make it sound better, why don't I just go out and do it and actually start to try to live a more meaningful and a more deeper life. And so what he finds is he starts to try to do all these different things. And really the main point of the whole book comes to be that when we start to align with God's story and what he's doing and what he has for us, our life becomes more and more meaningful and more and more deeper. And that's kind of the main point of the book. And and that kind of sparked my thought on as we start this series We're just simply going to call it the story. Um, What we're going to do, just to give you kind of big idea what we're going to do this year at Church of the Apostles, throughout the year, from now until the end of the year, we're going to do an overview of all of Scripture. We're going to hit the whole thing. But what we're going to do, not to scare, it's not just one sermon series all year. We're actually going to do several different ones, but three big chunks of it are going to be kind of overview, getting the big picture of all what Scripture is. And I'm really excited about it because as we think about ourselves individually, our story, our story collectively as a church, our story as people, that not until we see the more, or I should say the more clearly we see God's story and what he's doing, the more meaningful ours becomes. So as we start to see this in the picture, we start to connect some of the dots and we see more clearly how God's moving and what he's doing and what he's been doing, what he was doing in scripture, but what he's doing in all of history and how it's still moving, then it helps us to engage more and become more in line with what he's doing. And I'm excited about it because I still remember very vividly taking a class in seminary. And it was one of the first classes I took where we um, actually I took it in the summer. So it was a two week intensive class. You're in there every day. And uh, the professor taught the overview of the Bible in one eight hour session one day. And I remember just being blown away. And I knew the Bible fairly well. And I felt like I knew, and I had never seen it like that. And it just changed the way I looked at so many things. So in a lot of ways, that's what we're going to do spread out over time. And hopefully as we do that, we really start to get more and more depth to our own story, our story as a church. But even more so, we align with what God's doing and see more clearly. So that's just big idea where we're going. So when we talk about that, well, how how do we do that? Well, we do that. We, we start at the beginning. 
we start in Genesis. So to this morning, we're going to start in Genesis 1. We're going to look at Genesis 1. And uh, I'll be honest, this is uh, a little bit dawning. It's a little bit of a, uh, a big thing to think about, kind of looking at all of Scripture and going through it. But since that's the case, let's pray before we start. So let's just take a moment to pray, and then we'll, then we'll begin to look at this. Dear Lord, we do thank you for uh, the story, all of, all of your story, all of history, how uh, it centers around you. We thank you for your word, uh, the fact that we can see the big picture, that we can see the big story because you've laid it out for us in your word and you've told us how it goes and uh, how it's progressing and we even know how it's going to end and we thank you for that. We pray that we would see more clearly today just even the beginning and what that means for us, what it means for who you are and what you're doing in our lives and we pray that this morning that we'd be faithful to your word, that it would be clear, that your Holy Spirit would come and open our hearts and our minds to see it more clearly and that we would apply it to our lives as we leave here today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we begin in Genesis 1, I think sometimes we talk about Genesis and quickly, especially in Christian circles, we kind of jump straight to kind of debating periphery things. We kind of go, well, what about this? And, and so you start to get into all these theories and, you know, is there a gap between verses 1 and 2? And if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's okay. But the, you know, we get into all these kind of theological different things and we, we jump right to those things. And there's nothing wrong with talking about those things, by the way. I'm not, I'm not putting that down. I'm not saying that's bad. But what I want us to do this morning, instead of getting off into some of those debatable things and where we talk about those, is just focus clearly on what it does say, what it does tell us, the big idea of what's happening. And what we get with that when we start is that there was nothing and then there was something and God created it. That's, that's the, big, the, big, the big, simple, simple, right? Right at the very beginning that God created everything and he is the creator and what that means for us. And what we're going to do, even though this is an overview and we're going to move through big parts of scripture, we're still, even with an overview, even moving quickly, we're still going to spend three weeks in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 because it is so foundational to all things. And what we're really going to do this week is look at who God is. And then next week we'll look at the story and then see who we are. And then the third week, we'll kind of see what went wrong, how, how things got messed up, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But this week, we're really focusing on who God is. That's what we're looking at in Genesis 1, and that's the main question. And the way I want to do it, the way I want to think about it is, who is he, and then how does it form the, inform the big story? How does it help us in understanding the big story? So what we're going to start with is, let's just look at Genesis 1.1, and uh, as, as straightforward as you can be, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And uh, you really could even say as we begin this morning, you could just say in the beginning God and stop right there for just a second. Because the reality, what we see in scripture and what it teaches us is in the beginning, God is. He's there. He's before all things and he is preexistent and he's eternal and he's there before the creation, the foundation of the world. There is God. And that's why if you'll notice uh, uh, that the title of the sermon today is God is and I was thinking about that in terms of um, that's really what he tells uh, Moses, who if, if you're unaware, Moses wrote Genesis and God tells Moses, write this down. So the people have they know where they came from and he, he inspires Moses to write this and he tells them. And when he when God tells Moses, when he first speaks to Moses, if you know the story in the burning bush and he tells him and he speaks to him, Moses says, who should I say sent me? Because he's telling him to go into Egypt and he says, you tell him I am sent you. And so when I say God is, in a lot of ways, that's what God tells us his name is. I am. And that's it. I am. I am that I am. I am there and I'm eternal. And a lot of times, 
sort of going back in our culture, I could probably say this at the beginning point. God is, and that's where it starts. And just kind of leave that and say, okay, we're moving on to point two. The sad part is in our culture today, that's, that's a serious point of contention. People get very upset with if you say, well, God exists and he is. And, you know, maybe 50 years ago you could get away with saying that clearly, well, God is and he knows more than I do and he's above us and there's things that we can't understand. Well, today we've kind of tried to, to switch that, to turn it on its head. And there's, there's a, I shouldn't say predominant, there's a worldview today in our culture that is a naturalistic worldview. And what, what they mean is, what we can see and we can touch and we can feel in nature is all there is. And what they've done is it's led to what philosophers and you know, all, the, all those smart guys talk about. They say a new atheism has arisen. And new atheism is this. They say that there is no God. And, 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 you can't, and, and not only are they saying, I don't believe there's a God. They're saying that we can prove through science there's not a God. And now we're going to go try to convert everybody else to our way of thinking. And that's very predominant in our society today, and it's growing. And the reason I bring that up is I don't want to just say God is and then we move on and not take a second to at least think about that because this is the world we live in, whether you believe. And I know many of you don't believe that way, don't think that. But if you do, I want you to at least stop and think about what they're saying when they say that. See, what's happened is we've taken science, which by definition is testing what I can see and what I can feel and what's in front of me. And then they're taking that limited scope and then applying it to things that you can't see. So they're taking something. What they're now doing is making philosophical statements based on science. You follow that? What they're saying is they're, they're going outside of science and using science like it's proof. And it's like, oh, wait a second. That doesn't work. Um, Alvin, Alvin Plantinga, he's a Christian philosopher, says this. He says, if we say that God doesn't exist because science requires it, it's like saying a drunk who insists on looking for his lost keys only under the street light on the grounds that the light is better there. You follow what he's saying, right? And he says, in fact, it would be one step further. It would be saying, taking the drunk one better. It would insist that because the keys are hard to find in the dark, they must be under the light, right? That's really what they're saying. They've, they've stepped outside their bounds. And now, I, I don't mean this as just a little philosophical. Get you. I just want you to think about that because you will hear that often in our society as it's a given, like this has been proven. And if you don't believe it, then you're just a primitive person that doesn't think very well. And that's just not true. They've out, they stepped outside the bounds of science. And I bring that up because that's the world we live in. And today in our society, you know, you go back in Western society, they, they try to trace back. I was reading this this week on when the switch started happening, that we we just doubt the existence of God. And actually, it goes all the way back to the beginning. And we'll talk about that in two weeks when everything kind of falls apart. But. But, you know, in our Western thinking, why why we, we moved from that? And a lot will uh, hypothesize that it goes back to Rene Descartes. He's a French philosopher in the 1600s. And if you don't know anything about philosophy, I don't, I don't know a whole lot about philosophy either. I'm not going to spend a long time on it because a lot of times I was telling, uh, Joanne and I were talking about this, and she said, don't talk about philosophy a long time. Everybody's going to go, oh. All I'm going to say, all Descartes said, and this is the important part, is he says, I think, therefore I am. You've probably heard that before. He's the one that came up with that. And without going into the philosophical meaning of that and all that stuff, what it, the only thing we're going to focus on is what he was saying is that I know I exist because I'm thinking about it. Right. That's essentially what he was saying. I know I exist because I'm thinking about it. And what I want to bring to your attention is in that little philosophical, I think, therefore I am. Who is the center of that statement? I think. Therefore, I am right. 
And what it is, is he, was, he wasn't even trying to disprove God or anything like that, but it's the, it, it makes it, we're the center of everything. I'm the arbitrator of truth, and I'm the one that makes the decision. And so I was thinking about him saying that and how that's pervasive in our world. That's exactly with the new atheism. I've decided by what I can tell in science that God does not exist. Right? It's all me-centered. And I was thinking about this. I've been reading uh, Jonathan Edwards' biography, if you know who Jonathan Edwards was. He's probably one of the greatest American Christian thinkers. He was one of the great pastors. He was a Puritan pastor way back 1700s in Boston. And he, he wrote in his journal, and I was reading this the other day, he was talking about how if God were for just a millisecond to remove from his thought our world, the universe, it would cease to exist Poof, it would be gone. If God could put it out of his mind, it would no longer exist. And what Edwards was uh, contemplating and thinking on, what he was really saying is, God thinks, therefore we are. You see the difference between I think, therefore I am, God thinks, therefore we are. And that's really what we get back to with Genesis 1 when we start to think about it biblically. God is. It starts with him. It all starts with him. It begins with him as opposed to it begins with me deciding what what there is and what there isn't. And that is so foundational to everything we see in Scripture, that it begins with God. And that's really our first point is that simply that God is. But then what, what that leads us to next, God is, but then the next part would be, well, then God is creator, not creature. There's a difference between the created being and the creator. Now, it doesn't mean we as, as creatures, we are created beings, we can create as well and we can do creative things. But I want you to think about the things we do, whether it's, it's painting or music or, or woodworking or whatever your hobby is. We do things and we can be creative and we can make things, but we're making things out of existing stuff. Right? If I'm going to paint a picture, I need to get a canvas and some paint. Or if I'm going to build some furniture, I've got to get the wood and my tools and all those things. And we're using what we have. The difference between creator and creature, between God and us, is God creates out of nothing. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't have to have some stuff to whip up something like we do. We're made in his image so we can create things, but we're reliant on what he's given us to do so. You see the difference between creator and creature. And this is so fundamental at the very beginning when it says God created the heavens and the earth. And it's one of those things that as we start to think about it, when we get this perspective, it will really change the way we think about things. And uh, I heard a really good, great analogy, a good story by uh, Don Carson. If you've never heard of Don Carson, uh, he's written a lot of books. His name D.A. Carson is what it says on all his scholarly books. And uh, he's, a, he's a, philo- uh, a history professor and a New Testament scholar, and he's just a really brilliant man. But he tells a story of a young girl who takes a job Uh, teaching science in uh, Belfast. She's right out of college. I'm sorry, I said science, teaching history. She used to be a history teacher, really in a bad neighborhood, poor part of town, very poor town in a rough neighborhood, and she's teaching history. And when she gets there, she takes this job, and she's 23 years old, and they say, you're going to teach history, but part of history is you have to teach the Bible. And, oh, by the way, you're teaching middle school boys. Right. So that, that should tell you. Something. So she's she's to teach middle school boys the Bible in a public school where it's still required there. And she's just so she goes in and tries to teach them the Bible. And she starts and she's telling them all these things. And she's just struggling really hard. And uh, if you know any school teachers or you've done teaching before, I had to do student, student teaching way back. And a young teacher, the hardest part really is the classroom discipline. 
and you, you, know, you put a, a 22-year-old girl with middle school boys, her first teaching job, trying to teach them the Bible in a poor part of you know, a rough neighborhood and all this stuff, and uh, she was just failing miserably. She didn't know what to do. So a couple weeks into the first year, she comes in with the stuff to make plaster of Paris. And she says, okay, and she mixes it all up, and she tells them, she says, what we're going to do is we're going to make little beings, little people. We're going to create stuff. And she starts having the guys do this and they get kind of excited. Okay, well, this is neat. And she has them make all these different things. And as the story goes, you know, typical middle school boys, they make like grotesque stuff and some are just really obscene and whatever. And but she thanks them all for making their things. And she says, okay. and she collects them all and she takes them home and she bakes them and she puts them and she hardens them and they get all baked and she brings them back and she explains to them that now what we're going to do is you're going to write a backstory for these little beings that you've created. And they go, oh, you know, they get excited and they say, okay. And so they start writing, well, this is his name and this is what he does and this is how they're related and so on and so forth. And they do this for a while. And then she comes in one day and she says, now we're going to get in teams and you're going to make little worlds for your guys. You're going to make roads and you're going to make different things. And whoever, whichever team can do the best is going to win this competition. So she gets them into competition and they're really going and it goes and goes. And then finally she comes in one day and she says, you know, these are really little guys And they have really little brains. You think we should come up with some rules for them, right? That we should have some rules on how they interact with each other. And the guys are, yeah, yeah, that's good. And one of the little boys raises his hand and he says, "Um, I think we should say they're not allowed to go in the water because if they did, they would dissolve. And she says, that's a great one. That's a great thing. And one says, I can't go on the edge of the desk because they might fall off and they'd break. And she says, that's another good one. So they do this and they do it all day and they end up with 28 rules. So the next day she comes in and she says, don't you think we should maybe pare this down? These are, these are very little guys and they have little brains. You think they can really remember 28 rules? And they, the boys agree and they talk through it. And then finally, as they're going through, one of the little boys raises his hand and he's trying to bring it all down. And she says, yeah, what, what do you have? And he says, I think the rule should be they do whatever I say whenever I tell them. And she said, okay, all right, well, that's good. So they, they get it all down to this. And she's built this up for weeks on end. And finally, she comes in the next day and she says, how would you guys react or what would you think if if these guys started to say, you know, I think I'm going to go swimming because I don't really care what you say. Or I think I'm going to walk along the edge of the desk because it doesn't really matter. You don't live in my world anyway. I'm just going to ignore you altogether, even though you may. And, and she started to build this and she said she could see the boys start to get angry and to get frustrated. And she just kept pushing and kept going. And finally, one of the little boys just yelled out, I would break their bloody leg. He screams it out in frustration. How dare they, this thing that I made, do that? And they got so mad. And she finally got them to that point. And then she said, I'd like you to open your Bibles to Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. And then she started to tell them the story of how God is and he created all things. And it completely changed the perspective. See, when we get this, this first point that God is, that he's the creator of all things, it completely changes our perspective on everything. And it's so, so important to everything that comes next in Scripture. It's such a vital point to everything we say and we go from there. So the beginning part here is as we say God is and that he's the creator, not the creature. He created all things. There was something and then there was nothing. But then that just answers part of it. We start to get that, yes, God is sovereign and he's over all things. But there's a couple other questions we need to ask to get further into it. I'd like to ask it this way. How does he create and then why does he do it? 
How does he create and then why does he do it? When we talk about how he creates, look at verse 26 with me. As God spoken through the days of creation, he gets down here to 26 and he says, Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And what you get is here God's in conversation here and he's talking about what to do, how we're going to do this. And it's, and it's an interesting thing. Says the question, if you're reading, just a natural reading is who is God talking to? Right? God exists. He's here. He's one. He's God. Who is he talking to? And uh, it, it's not, you know, I've heard people say, well, maybe he's talking to angels. Well, he's not talking to angels because uh, in Isaiah chapter 40, it talks about how God doesn't consult or need anything from anyone. He doesn't ask. He, he doesn't need to consult anyone. So it's not that. But then look back at verse two, because we're asking that question. Well, who's he talking to? Verse two says the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So what you get is this picture of God's spirit being intimately involved in creation. And he's hovering. Uh, The word has a connotation of like a mother bird helping a bird start to fly hovering and being there to help and intimately involved. And it's this really neat picture. So we start to start to get this idea. And then we see God begins to create and he starts to say, we talk about how he creates. He, he creates by his word, right? Nine times from verse three down to 26, nine times. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be an expanse. And God said, and God said, and he says it over and over. And what you start to get is I want you to think about that. God's word has action. When he speaks, things happen. You know, I can say, let there be light. But unless somebody walks over and flips on the light, that's not happening, right? My words don't make things happen. God's words have action. And so as we start to think of how he creates and what's going on, that question becomes God's word has action. And he's always creating by his word in scripture. He speaks and things happen. And then it raises the question, well, why is that? Why does God's words have action? Why does it happen when he speaks? And the reason is the answer comes to us much later in Scripture, and it's just touched on. It's just a hint here in Genesis 1. But there's another part in Scripture where it begins in the beginning. If you know that passage, it's in John chapter 1, and it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then in verse 14, John says, And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God's word has action because God's word is a person. God's word is Jesus. So when we talk about how does God create, what we have is God the Father speaking, the word Jesus creating, the Spirit hovering. You have God in the full Godhead and the Trinity creating there. One, one uh, monotheistic, one God alone, but in three parts working together. So when we read 26 and it says, let us make man in our image and after our likeness, what we have is the Trinity. We have God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit, deciding to create and make man in his image. And this is a huge, huge point of what we look at and so foundational to everything we believe and what we look at as, as uh, Christians and followers of Christ. Jesus was there from the beginning. Nothing was made, as John says, without him. God speaks and then it happens in the action and it's, it's all right there at the beginning. So as we talk about how does God create, he creates through the Trinity. 
working together right there in Genesis 1. But then the next question becomes, well, why did he create to begin with? Why, in the world, why did he even do it? And I think a lot of times we get a misunderstanding here and a bad teaching comes in and we don't even think it. I don't know that I've actually heard anyone explicitly teach this, but I think it's just our own uh, self-centered minds kind of think this way. Our own sin nature starts to go here. What we, what we often do is we say there's this misunderstanding that we think, well, well God created man because he was lonely or he needed something to do or maybe he was bored. Okay, well, I'll make this, I'll do this to bring me some joy, to fulfill me. And, that, and we start to go there and we start to think that way, but that's, that's not it at all. That's not what Scripture teaches. That's not what it says. God didn't make man to complete himself or he needed something. Or, well, but what, see, we do that, we try to make the big story, the whole thing about us, right? I love the quote from Donald Miller. I've said this often, but he says it this way. He says, the greatest lie that I've ever had to contend with is that life is a story about me. We are all that way. We all begin to make it about us. And that's how that teaching kind of creeps in. Well, it's all about me. It's all God had to make me. He had to make us to make him. And we start to go down that road and we start to think that way. But that's not what Scripture teaches. See, what we have is the Trinity dwelling perfectly in in the Godhead right there at the beginning. And God is perfectly complete, perfect joy, perfect fullness, perfect happiness in and of himself in that relationship of the Trinity. He doesn't create because he needs us to fulfill his joy. And that's hard for us to grasp sometimes. And we go, oh, wait a second. And sometimes we then jump uh, wrongly to, well, then he doesn't care or he doesn't love if, he's, if he didn't really need us. But no, no, that's, that's not it. He does care and he does love us and he does care about us and we are his creation and he made us. But what it does mean is that his love is not dependent on us. And that's wonderful news. That's a good thing, that his love is not dependent on us. He is not shaken or thrown by what we do or what happens or, oh, no, what are they? He's not sitting on pins and needles. Oh, no, my, my world's going to fall apart if they don't do what I... No, he is. He created all things. He didn't need. He's completely in full joy in and of himself. And when we start to see that, it changes the way we look at this whole story and everything. And when you get down to verse 31 and it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and morning the sixth day. He gets to the end of creation. And what we have is God looks at everything he's made and he says, This is very good. It's very good. It's in, it's in perfect harmony. It's in perfect peace. It's in perfect joy because it's made in his image. It's reflecting who he is. God is and of himself perfectly content and happy and joyful and all those things. He didn't make us to create that. So then the question becomes, well, why did he make us? Why did he do so? And when I read 26 and you get this picture of let us make man in our image and after our likeness, God himself in the Godhead, perfect harmony, perfect joy, perfect love, all those things together. You think of it almost as, you know, the symbols that we use for the Trinity, like the triangle or a circle, and it's the three and one together. That it's, that it's the, the Trinity there together and saying, let's expand the circle and, and share this joy with our creation. He's doing it to share with us. And so what happens is when he creates and when he gives back, he makes us to reflect who he is. 
right? We often say this, and, and maybe you've heard this before. We say, well, what's the chief end of man? If you've ever heard that, the Westminster Catechism, you maybe learned that as a child. We say, what's the chief end of man? We say, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that's right. And that's basically what we're hitting on. But a lot of times we say, well, it's to glorify God. And nobody really knows what that means. They're kind of like, yeah, yeah, glorify God. Glorify means to reflect back who he is. He made us in his image. It's to, to reflect back who he is because he is perfect in and of himself. So when we glorify him, we're really just pointing back to what he already is completely and totally in and of himself. And we're reflecting that back. So we get to reflect back. So think of it this way. God didn't create us to complete him. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. We don't complete him. He completes us. He's giving it to us. He's, he's sharing his joy and his perfect beauty and wonder and all that stuff by making us in his image to reflect back who he is. And this is huge when you start to think about it because what it means is God is the center of the story. Not only is God the center of the story, God is for God. Or another way to say it is God is God-centered as he should be. Right? If he's the most perfect beautiful, loving, complete, every perfect thing you can have is God in and of himself. If he was for anything else, it would be unloving. If he created us and then made it all about us and let's point at you, what a mess it would be. It's not all about us. It's all about him. And when we start to see that, that completely transforms the whole story. It's to be centered completely and totally on him. And sometimes that's hard for us to hear because we do become so self-centered and we want it to be. And that's, by the way, that's that's not to diminish how much he loves us because he is perfect. The fact that he wants us to be centered on him is love. You see that if he is the perfect best thing that you can ever have in your life, there's nothing else there. Anything less would would not be loving. And so the whole story, the whole thing centers on him and we really shouldn't want it any other way. Because when he is not the center, it's to disastrous effects. And we're going to look at that in two weeks. We're going to see that. What happens when we decide not to make him the center? And we're still feeling the repercussions today. Uh, we still see it in our, it's, it's evident in our world right now, the fact that we've not made him center. So even though when we, when we do turn away from him, as we've all done, Right. That's we've said that many times the last few weeks. Sin is living without reference to God and the world he created. And we've all done that and we've all done it many, many times. But even when we do that, he still comes to us. He comes to redeem us and bring us back. He comes to do what we can't do for us, to restore us. And it's still about him. You see that? When he comes in Christ and he enters into the story to do what we can't do for us, and then he offers it as a free free gift, the only way we can be saved is to look to him and what he's done for us. And it's still about him. The whole story is about him. Uh, Think of it in Colossians 1 when it says, For by him all things were created, him talking about Jesus, in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, And for him and through him in verse 20 to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So whether we're at the very beginning before man decided to rebel or where we are today, it's still all about him and what he's done for us at the beginning and what he's doing to bring us back to that now. 
The whole story is about him. And this is so foundational to when we begin that it's all focused on him, that we're to be God centered in every part and every way. So as we begin 2012 and we start to step through this together and look at scripture and the big story, the prayer, my prayer is that we would be so centered on him, on who God is that everything we do and say would be centered on him completely in every way and in every place. See, the grand story of our lives, whether they're individual or collective or or people in general, must center on him because that's the way uh, the story was written. That's the way it started. It all started with him, and it's all going to end with us glorifying and praising him. So let's, that's, that's the beginning of the end. Let's use our time in this life to begin to align with that. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are God-centered, that uh, everything in your creation and everything there is points to you. I pray that we would seek to align with that uh, in every area of our lives, that we would make you the center. Um, as we just sang this morning, that you would be the center of our lives, that everything we do and say would be about you, that we'd see that all that we have, all good things come from you and nowhere else. And uh, I pray that that would just, uh, you would pierce our hearts with that truth, that we would see it more and more clearly, that we would seek to praise you Uh, in everything we do, that it would always be pointing back and glorifying who you are. We thank you. Thank you for all you've done for us. And we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.